Welcome to Fitness for Consumption, part of the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast network. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. Welcome everyone to Fitness for Consumption. I'm your host, Paul Juris, and I'm here with my really good friend and co-host, Gregory Gordon. Gigi, what's happening? How are you doing today? I am doing well. Uh, what do we have on the agenda for today? Well, Gigi, I'm glad you asked. So as you know, we're dedicating this season to motor skill, and we've already covered many different aspects of it. Today, though, we want to get into people's heads. Not so much into what they're thinking, but how they're feeling. So for that, we need to dive into psychology, and we're going to need some help with this. Well, we're really fortunate to have a guest with us today who's an expert in the field, Dr. Susan Sotir. Susie, as we affectionately call her, has her PhD in sports psychology and is a former assistant professor of research and statistics at Springfield College, right in my backyard. But here's the fun stuff. Susie's a member of USA Triathlon and a coach at their junior skill, specialty, and select camps. She focuses on evidence-informed endurance coaching and mental skills in individual sport practice and performance. She's the founder of Breakthrough Performance Coaching, a member of the National Strength and Conditioning Association, and she has over 30 years of experience in sport, coaching, and education. So Susie, it is really, really wonderful to have you join us. Uh, you know, we're old friends and colleagues, and I always appreciate your wisdom, your point of view, and especially given today's topic, which we'll get into in a few minutes. But what we always do as a tradition with our guests is we sort of ask them to Tell us your story. Like, when did you decide you wanted to do what you're currently doing? And what was the path you took in this journey that you had in order to get you with us today? So what do you think? Well, first of all, I'm so flattered to be asked and so excited to be here. Um, thrilled, actually. It's, it's, this is kind of a fun adventure. That's our first thrill, had... so we're thrilled to hear that. So. Ah, cool. Um, personal journey. So I... When I was in college, I swam Division Three, and we had to do some fundraising. 
And we had the option of either teaching swim lessons to faculty children on Saturday mornings, or there was one slot where you could coach master's athletes two nights a week. Yeah, sign me Ding. up for that one, <laughs> uh, without question. And when I got into that environment, I had individuals ranging in age from 20s-ish into their 60s, in experience levels from complete novice swimmers to three professional triathletes. Wow. And what I recognized really fast was, yeah, no, this wasn't a sweet little cakewalk in the evening, just coming in and throwing up a set. <laughs> I was actually responsible for the folks over here, their safety, because mm -hmm. if they drown, it's bad. Mm -hmm. um, and then the folks over here, their livelihood, because if they aren't prepared to meet the demands of their profession, they're not going to make money. Mm -hmm. So that really kind of charged me with this idea of, wow, I can't just stink at this. So I started really trying to look at how to coach this sport in a way that was impactful to, to everybody in front of me. And I did something okay. And I did other things really poorly, um, but I got better. And so this is a, as a college student, right? So you had all yeah. this pressure on you to help people earn a living doing this while you were in college. Yep. Remarkable. You get an A for that anyway. And their trust as well, which yeah. is remarkable. So I stuck with that. I did that for three of the four years that I was there. And I loved it. It was not anything to do with my major. I was a double major in English and classics. I could mm. translate a Latin text without even looking <laughs> at a dictionary. And, and all of a sudden, I was being asked to pull in and, and integrate these demands of sports science and movement and people's experience of what they were enduring in front of me and mm. this long-term goal of, of preparing them for something that wasn't imminent. Mm -hmm. And it was cool. And, and it was teaching. And basically I am the child of a teacher. I am the grandchild of a teacher. I, that educational role was something that I grew up with and, and something I kept doing. And I went into teaching and even when I was teaching, I was coaching. And then when I went back to grad school round one, I studied speech language pathology, you know, completely in the sports science realm still. Uh, but <laughs> Trying to figure though, that one out. Yeah, no, exactly. But even there, it was about people's learning process. And speech language pathology was actually my sort of first exposure to motor skill and neuromotor production, um, mm -hmm. which I didn't recognize at the time, not till later. And I started using that information in the coaching that I was still doing on the side. And the theme throughout everything I was doing was I was teaching and coaching. And I treated coaching as teaching the entire way through and finally made the decision that that was my profession and chose one job instead of two. And while I was doing that, I, so I had, from that point on, I'd had the opportunity to work with different sports, but also with year round sort of the traditional USA swimming model where the, the kids are from eight years old to 18 years old, swimming year round, competing in uh, individual events at larger competitions. And then I moved from there into a high school environment, which was more competitive, points mattered, performance mattered. You, you moved on to state level or sectional level, kind of whatever you qualified for next. And I was working with a team of high school boys, a varsity team, 
And I started to really recognize that I was getting pretty good at the craft of coaching. Mm -hmm. I was preparing them well physiologically. I was preparing them well for their skills. But when they got up on the blocks, I would have two guys that I knew were equally well prepared for a race. And one of them would either meet expectations or exceed them and just crush things. Mm -hmm. And the other would not. And Mm. that was a piece that I, I struggled with. And, you know, everybody's like, oh, just tell them to toughen up. Oh, tell them to suck it up, buttercup. All all this stuff. And it's like, that's not a helpful strategy. Like, suck it up, buttercup is not a skill or or a competency. It's not motivation either, is it? No, not in any way, shape, or form. Right. And so I was, was, you know, like any good human does, I complained about it over dinner to my husband one night. (laughs) And... He said, well, why don't you go back to school? Well, because I'm about to turn 40 and we have an eight-year-old and who goes back to school now? Uh, And so, of course, that meant I applied for a doctoral program and went back to school for sports psychology. (laughs) Completely, if you look at my resume, my resume is about as ugly and and (laughs) unattractive as anybody's could possibly be. Because well, every I'm a proud oppor- member of that club. <laughs> but it is eclectic. It's eclectic. And, and every opportunity was, everything that I said yes to, I said yes because it intrigued me or it interested me or I knew it would force me to grow in a way that I hadn't grown before. And that's what school did going back to school at that point in time because I got to start to understand what some of the underlying infrastructure that I could act on as a coach was. And of course, from there, it then became, well, I can actually use this for education. And I started to get these kind of highfalutin ideas because I had a PhD after my name that I should be doing something important. And you already I were, to, though. I, I, it, it's one of those, I feel like a lot of professionals in the sport world don't necessarily feel like coaching is enough. And that if we have all this education, we should be doing something important and changing the field and and having a mark. And when I worked with you, I felt like I was doing that, but it didn't feel for me to be the right fit. And when I got the opportunity to go back and have a classroom again uh, on a daily basis, Mm -hmm. that was, that felt right at the time. Mm -hmm. And when I was there, I realized that I was I I was not asking the kind of questions that are really well suited to research. I was asking the kind of questions that would develop the students in front of me in a way that grew them professionally. I was coaching. Was you like, were coaching. I was coaching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a few things happened in my outside world that made me recognize that just because I had the you know, tenure track faculty position, the job a million girls would kill for, didn't mean it was the right path for me. And I needed to maybe be a little bit brave and quit and go back to what it was that I know is my niche, which is coaching and working with athletes and changing changing that environment on a day-to-day basis with those individuals, not in a sporting environment. And that's kind of where I ended up. So Susie, I have a question for you, and maybe this is just semantics, but hearing you describe your journey, 
You tell me, what's the difference between a teacher and a coach? Is it In just my environment? Mind, nothing. Nothing? Yeah, okay. No, it, it depends on how you do it. But if you stand in front of humans and tell them what to do, you are neither a teacher nor a coach. If you help them find the next level of information they need to be able to increase their skills, you are both a teacher and a coach. Hallelujah. I mean, what what are we doing? We're we are teaching people how to think, how to resolve their issues, how to become self-empowered, how to do something better. I'm all in. Yeah. Sign me up. I love it. So thanks for sharing that because I think it's important for our listeners to hear that and, and then put into context why you're here and why we feel it's important for you to speak to our audience because... It's that kind of experience that I think people need to listen to and understand in order to really try to change their own trajectory, right? So we're going to shift into this next topic, which is really the overriding theme of our episodes in this season, which is skill. And we've asked our listeners to share with us what they think the most difficult skill is to do in sports. And we got some feedback from one of our listeners, which is Jordan Friedman. Um, He's got an Instagram, at Jordan Friedman. And Jordan says that the most difficult thing to do in sports is treading water in water polo. And when asked why, the reply was, it requires you to have an extremely strong core and lower body. Now, I'm just saying, and and Susie, I think as a psychologist, you you can maybe understand this. When we ask someone a question, we sort of have this predisposition towards the type of answer we think we're going to get, mm-hmm. right? We, we frame a question and there's a context around that. And then someone says something which is totally different from anything we would have expected, which doesn't make it right or wrong, by the way. It's sort of like when you give 10 people an instruction on how to do a movement and you see 10 different interpretations of that instruction. This is kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, treading water in water polo, I guess that wears you out. I mean, it's a very difficult thing to do because you can't stop, right? You're, you're in the water, and if you stop, you sink. And so um, what do you think about that answer? So I, I completely get it because the environment of water is heavier than, than land. Like, I I understand that piece. Um, It is constant. So it's an endurance activity as much as it is a a strength and reactivity uh, skill. Um, But I got to disagree. I I, got to disagree. Um, All right. Because there is a mechanical advantage to how you tread water. Mm -hmm. uh, And you are able to turn that skill up and down. And... It is a habituated part of their activities, so it, it's almost secondary in nature. So mm. they are fit for that activity mm-hmm. so that they have enough um, mental capacity or cognitive capacity still left available mm-hmm. to think about tactics and reactions and next moves. So that's kind of where I, I feel like the environment is relatively predictable not perfectly, but relatively. Mm-hmm. The preparation time is consistent and available, so you have time to practice and develop the fitness necessary. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree that it requires an enormous amount of lower body strength and core strength, 
100%. From a skilled perspective, I, I feel like the, the constraints around it might be more difficult in some other scenarios and situations. You know, I didn't even realize it when we, we brought this question in, how ideally suited you are to answering or to <laughs> responding to that. I mean, you know, you being a, a swimming coach and triathlon coach. So, wow, serendipitous that we actually included that. So, all right. So what's your opinion? What's the most difficult skill in sports? I'm sitting between two. Um, and it will not be hitting a baseball. Uh, <laughs> That's a popular one. If this was it's, the family feud, that would be the number one answer. Right? That would be the number one answer, yeah. but it, it's not that. Um, okay. if, if it were a ball sport activity, I would say it's penalty kicks because the amount of real estate that has to be guarded, the intensity, the, the psychological intensity and pressure of the situation, and then the unpredictability, even if you've scouted mm. somebody, you don't actually know what it is they're going to do. So there's a reactive quality where the timeline is incredibly short. Um, and then it's an explosive movement and mm -hmm. you've got one shot. <laughs> you can't adjust on the way. Yeah, uh, and you're so, guessing basically, right? So your heels yeah. are on the goal line and you have to guess left or right or stay where you are, which I don't typically see goalies do in PKs, right? Don't they go left or right typically? Does, does anyone like, just stay in the middle? I don't know enough i haven't watched enough of soccer football to uh to be able to say that with any kind of confidence interesting but my other one that i really kind of set my mind to on this one is big wave surfing hmm. Walk because us that. you are in an environment that is incredibly threatening that you have very few opportunities to practice in mm -hmm. where you are hurtling down at a velocity that is is extremely high um, you are on an unstable surface mm -hmm. and this the the surface underneath your own unstable surface is moving and changing at a speed that is an incredibly high rate that one to me requires your entire commitment both physically and mentally i can't imagine anything more difficult and and if you screw up you die <laughs> well, the consequences are pretty yeah. significant, aren't they? Right. Um, so that's where I ended up. That's fascinating. And and since you brought up the sort of the perform or die or your mental state going into this, now's a great time for us to segue into our conversation. And so as we as our listeners probably understand at this point, our season is all about skill. And we've discussed skill from a variety of perspectives, from physical capabilities and problem solving and so the cognitive aspect, uh, perceptual substrates or selective attention. What are we paying attention to and how are we using that information? We've talked about different learning processes, whole versus part. We also talked about cueing. There's one thing that we've alluded to, to this point, and that's what we refer to as a psychological substrate, right? So this psychological readiness to be able to perform. And this is why we asked you to join us because we think this is an important part of skill acquisition is this readiness. And we would like you to start with your sort of perspective on what a psychological substrate is and how that influences performers and skillful performance 
So what I really think we're, we're wanting to talk about is efficacy. And mm -hmm. efficacy is, is one's um, belief in their ability to execute a specific skill or their expectations and readiness to be able, that they believe they're able to handle the task conditions that are set forth. They're, so they're willing to try. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have to know you can do it, but you have to know that you have enough wherewithal to potentially be able to do that. So efficacy is, is always, um, it always lands in the psychological realm. Any psychological response or action has a physiological component to it. If we experience a stressor and appraise it as positive, we have a different physiological response than if we appraise it as negative. Mm -hmm. So that says to me that the psychological components can't be separated. And then if we actually look at what, it, what gets classified under psychological, perceptual skills get classified under psychological. So mm -hmm. your ability to sustain direct selective attention, that's psychological. When we think about what your psychological substrates are, they are your cognitive skills as they stand, your capacity um, as it exists with your the, the gifts that you've been given and then what you've been what you've done with them. And it it extends then forward to your past experiences and how they impact how you appraise information. So your appraisal process and then your coping processes. What do you have available for either proactive coping, planning ahead for difficult situations, or for in situation or in situ coping where you are either dealing with the problem or dealing with the emotions and what's your skill set there? And then what's your general greater mental well-being or, or mental health because if, if your physical health is bad, your ability to perform skills is impacted. Well, if your mm -hmm. mental health is bad, your ability to, to perform skills is also impacted. I did have a question. You said, you know, when someone goes through an appraisal process, they can, that could become a positive or a negative. And how fine is that line between positive and negative when you're going through that appraisal? Oh, you're going to love this answer. <laughs> It depends. It depends. <laughs> of course. I was expecting that. Sorry. It depends. Okay. So, you know what? That's a really great introduction uh, to our topic. We have some other very detailed questions that we want to ask you, and we're going to do that right after this short break. So Susie, I have a question for you. We've heard of the term arousal, right? And I think, you know, we, we need to define that. And I'm not going to define that because I think that's better for you to define. So um, what is it? What is it in the context of performance? And then I have this question, like, what would be the Goldilocks zone of arousal? And I think you know what Goldilocks zone is. And we had Dave Baim on here, and he talks about his version of the Goldilocks zone. Um, so it, the reason that I asked that question is because I think you can be over aroused or you could be under aroused. And how does that affect the uh, performance and skill? In the context of sport and sports psychology, there's a couple different definitions that are most well known. The probably single most well known one is Weinberg and Gould. They define arousal as a general physiological and psychological activation varying on a continuum from deep sleep to excitement. So hmm. it's both 
physiological and psychological. Uh, there's another definition that I like in some contexts, and that's Cashmore's definition, which is that arousal is a pattern acti of activities, both physiological and cognitive, that prepare us for a task. And I kind of like both of those, but in reality, arousal is a physiological response to a psychological experience. Mm -hmm. and, so and so put that in English for us. Like, <laughs> what does that really mean? You think something, you feel something. Okay, and, and so you said it's like a level of activation, and, you know, I would say it's sort of like, I, I was talking to Gigi about it, if you're in a drag race, like you hit the accelerator, you know, to rev the engine before you actually hit the go, right? So is that sort of a reasonable facsimile of what arousal is? Like, what, it, what does it mean to be aroused to be able to perform? Like, you, you have to key up your system, you have to gear up your nervous system, you've got to get the sparks flying, what? So your body needs to be ready to be able to perform whatever the task demands. And different tasks are going to have different demands for what your body needs to be able to do. So when you engage in any kind of activity or task, you're going to have some type of like body that you bring into it. Mm -hmm. And the more threatening, challenging, intriguing, or physically demanding the task is, the higher your level of cognitive thought, of uh, dry mouth, of cortisol type responses, mm -hmm. stressor mm -hmm. responses, your heart rate goes up, your palms sweat, you're, you, you need to pee or poop just to be, you know, as clear as possible. Your legs get heavy with the, with the sort of neural response. Um, you, you start to go into this pattern that we often recognize or describe as fight or flight. It's just a body response to a potential situation, a potential either threat or challenge. It's neither good nor bad. It just needs to be right for that person and that task in that environment. So we really come into that, that constraints-led approach of things. But for most tasks that are fine motor, we have to have a lower level of arousal. And there are some people who, who don't. They can, you know, they can really function extremely well with much more amp in their system. But in general, the more fine motor the task, the lower level of arousal that is more preferred and the more gross motor a task, so if we think, I know you guys talked about powerlifting, mm -hmm. um, the, the actual sport of powerlifting, mm -hmm. if you need to deadlift heavy stuff, mm -hmm. you need to be physiologically ready. From a, and that arousal level for most people needs to be much, much higher. And there's multiple theories of arousal and optimal arousal. Um, the most familiar one that... that probably comes to mind is the, the Yerkes-Dodson inverted U curve, where there's places that are too low, a range that's perfection, and then you, your performance starts to suffer if it gets too high. And, and then there's also what is referred to as a zone of optimal functioning. And that gives a little bit more range of what is possible for different types of environments and events. And that allows people, in my opinion, to start to control or practice and try different levels of arousal and see what works for them. And then it might be different in a different set of circumstances. So Susie, the other thing that I think is really interesting is as you were talking uh, and just 
thinking about something like a football quarterback that has to have a combination of like fine and gross motor skills. You know, there's like very subtle touch he has to put on a ball. He's got to throw a ball 60 yards down the field and have a really small margin of error. So it's, it's really interesting when you think about like how you have to like get this right level of activation versus inhibition to be able to perform these things. Yeah, no, it's, it, and then there becomes also that sort of appraisal process. Like, if my body is starting to feel this way, it's a bad thing versus, oh, my body is starting to feel this way, I'm ready. And that single appraisal piece can shift things dramatically in the exact same situation. Um, I'll, I'll give an example. I was on the beach at Ironman Lake Placid this year. And just chatting with a guy at, right near the entrance where people were getting in to sort of get ready to start the swim. And there was a woman and you could see the whites of her eyes and you could see the pale, like glistening sweat face. And she was having a moment. So I, I just kind of went over and I was like, hey, what's going on? And she's like, I don't know if I could do this. I could do it. And so... Yeah, I, I was like, well, have you have you been swimming? And she's like, yeah, no, I, I've been swimming four times a week. I've been practicing. I've done more than the distance. I've done this. And it's like, all right, have you been riding your bike? And, and again, she she had done all of the preparation. And it's like, so have you been running? She's like, oh, that's my favorite. I love running. This, this is what I hate. I, I hate this. This is, you know. And, I, and I'm kind of like, okay, well, you, you've done all the things. What What's your plan for going in there? Oh, survive. I was like, well. You're, you're gonna. I, I understand the specific fear that that's possible. I get that. But why are you so afraid of something that you've done so many times? She's like, well, I look at everybody else and they're so calm. I must be, there must be something wrong with me. I must not be ready if I feel this way. And I was like, no, that, that, that's just better at hiding it. Like, are you kidding me? And so I, I turned to just a random dude who was in a wetsuit getting ready for his race. And I'm like, you got butterflies in your stomach? He's like, oh my God, they're in my throat. And she's like, really? You really feel that way? He's like, oh yeah, no, it's part of this. And everything dialed back. Her arousal level, her physiological level didn't change that much in that split second, but her appraisal of her readiness did. And and that to me is sort of the the where the impact of appraisal really comes in on somebody's ability to perform under the arousal state that they're experiencing. It's a fascinating comment because the arousal state doesn't change necessarily. You know, and so me being a lay person when it comes to sports psychology, I would think that somehow mentally we can dial down the level of arousal. But what you're suggesting here is that people are still very, very keyed up. It's just that their coping mechanism, their appraisal of that level of arousal is what's changing. So their ability to process it and work within that state is improving. Mm -hmm. And then there are the behavioral choices that you can make to actually change or shift your arousal state. So controlling your breathing, slowing your breathing, um, the, the technique that I really like because it's, it's something people can grasp without any kind of education or experience, box breathing, breathe in for a count of six, hold your breath for a count of six, 
exhale on a count of six, hold yourself empty for a count of six, and repeat that six times. Yeah, I'm wondering if when you're working with your athletes, do you get to a point in their development that you start to play with their level of arousal, right? How do you, how can you manipulate that and how can you get them to focus on either bringing down their physiological activation or cope with things? And, and that's something that gets into practical applications, which we want to discuss as well. Mm-hmm. So do you do that with your athletes? Is there a game that you play with them? And how do you approach that? It depends on the situation and and the context, how I would approach it. So if I am working in person with athletes, first things first, you set up the skill that you're going to practice. Specifically, we're going to practice 180 degree turns on the bike. All right, now I'm going to ask you to perform said task in your normal environment with your normal preparation. So I then start to manipulate the constraints of the skill in order to create the challenges that will elicit either a a recognition that the the skill needs refinement or an actual opportunity to experience a higher level of skill. So if if we're talking about 180s, well, the first thing I'm going to ask you to do is to do it incredibly slowly. It's hard to balance a bike when you're moving incredibly slowly. Mm -hmm. It's, Mm -hmm. It's really difficult, actually. And then there's a lot of time to think. And then it's like, well, should I turn my head? Do I turn my head now? Do I straighten this arm? Do I straighten that arm? What do I? So now they have to review their declarative knowledge of how to do something. And well, now they have the opportunity to overlearn a past or a past piece of information in a better, different, more productive way. Now let's have you go through this side by side. Well, now I'm challenging your attentional focus as well as your perception of personal safety. I mean, typically I'm not doing this if you're not ready to do it. So you go through it side by side. Okay, now switch sides. Now switch directions to go through it the other way. All right, now let's put three of you through it. All right, now let's increase the speed. Now let's time it. So taking what the challenge is and then manipulating either the task constraint, the environmental constraint, or the individual functional constraint, I get the the opportunity to offer a lot of different types of teaching and experiences that help build their skill set. And then at the end of every single one of those, I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to say, all right, what went well for you? And I'm always going to start with what went well for you. Um, so what went well? Great, I agree. May I also add that this went well? So now I've given feedback on a specific task in a positive way. Next step is, all right, well, what could have gone better? And then forcing them to confront what some of the skills were. And I'm not going to add to that. I might have seen three other things that could have been done better. But they already picked something that was important to them. And therefore, it has a psychological presence that prioritizes it. Great. That will help you. I agree. How are you going to change it? So asking them to seek a solution first before I provide one for them. Mm -hmm. And even if they give me a wrong solution, I'm going to let them go try it as long as it is not a threat to their safety. There's an interesting part of that that you touch upon, and that's 
when you're providing them the feedback, the first thing you do is give them positive feedback. And we've done that in our applications, you know, at Cybex and when we're teaching motor skill and, and coaching, always start with the positive, tell people what they do well. But, you know, a lot of coaches, trainers are conditioned to immediately seize upon the things that aren't right and correct people for what they're doing wrong. We've talked about this in previous episodes, is corrective exercise techniques. You know, wait, this is wrong. You need to fix this. No, don't. that's not right, but you got to do this. How does that impact somebody psychologically, um, and how does it affect their state of arousal? I mean, does that just sort of pop the air out of the balloon? I mean, what what's the effect of doing things that way? So if we... There aren't a lot of great, well, um, well-tested psychological models, but mm-hmm. one that has been exposed or to testing quite a bit and consistently seems to come out with positive behavioral changes when impacted on appropriately is the self-determination theory. Right? Mm-hmm. So self-determination theory says that motivation comes from three sources, competence, social support, and autonomy or or control. Mm-hmm. So if we have an environment where somebody has just done something not to the standards of somebody wearing a shirt that says personal trainer on the back, if we immediately go to fix them when they're sitting there thinking they did okay, mm-hmm. well, We've just told them that their entire self-perception of what they thought they did was okay is now wrong. And, and they're incompetent. It, it, oh my goodness. Talk about slamming on their efficacy. They mm-hmm. just started to build some efficacy in this task. Oh, but you're entirely wrong. It's all bad. Hmm. Cool. Great. Why am I here? I suck. I'm out. That desire to fix is that personal trainers or that coaches individual need to express their expertise to feel Mm. important in the process and that is a challenge that we have to start to confront within ourselves if we are on that in that role because what we say has an impact on their their skill acquisition their next or subsequent skill performance their motivation their generalized enjoyment of the process, the words out of our mouth are as important to the fitness training process as the exercise that we select and the weight that we, we help people work towards. It, it's, it can't be separated. And, and our own fear of not being important to the process we got to stifle it. We got to put a lid on it and recognize that our competence doesn't come from what comes out of our mouth, but from for how we change that person's experience in front of us. Hello all, GG here. We hope that you're enjoying today's podcast and want to remind you that more great fitness content is right at your fingertips. So please join our friend Jennifer Schwartz on the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast show, where she offers her experience and knowledge about exercise physiology and athletic training in truly unique discussions on building resilience and inspiring high quality exercise. And now let's get back to our conversation. All right, we're back again. 
And we've been talking about arousal and sort of the Goldilocks zone and how we coach people and what kind of feedback we give to people. And, you know, one thing that came to my mind as we were discussing that is that when you start to get to higher states of physiological arousal, it almost seems to me like it becomes nervousness. And then that nervousness in a way can turn into stress. And I think stress is something that's really been in the sports news lately. If we look at someone like Simone Biles and her experience at the Olympics and what happened to her, and then more recently, Naomi Osaka and her behavior at the U.S. Open tennis tournament was very atypical of her. I don't think anyone's ever seen her toss her rackets around. And it was quite obvious what was happening to her skills you know, as she was at such a high level of arousal and stress. So, you know, how do those things affect performance? Like these are professional athletes for the most part. I mean, Simone Biles is still a professional athlete. Wow. Like, can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah. Now, if, if we think about stress, so defining stress, it's the physiological and psychological response to either an internal or an external stressor. And when we look at what experience, what, you know, let me go with Simone Biles, what she was experiencing, she was experiencing both internal stressors and external stressors. And her capacity to cope with the responses, the physiological and, and thought responses that accompany those particular stressors finally exceeded her, her capacity to cope. Um, coping is a skill just like throwing a vault is a skill and her skills for that environment are incredibly high and for her to have gone through both the the performance and physical training she's gone through but also the life experiences that are incredibly traumatic her coping skills are as elite as her gymnastic skills and so when we start to think about what her experience must have been like in, at the Olympics, well, we, we, her, her stressors were exceeding her capacities to cope. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would suggest that part of that comes from the, the constraints of, of the sport itself, the task itself. She was being judged on a different scale. And when the rules are no longer the same, that's an... Ex- that's a stressor she has not experienced in the past. It so you think that's like somebody's coming... expectation of what she should have been able to do, and therefore the judges were judging her based on their expected, her expected performance, not her actual performance? No, or am I misinterpreting They were that? actually downgrading her. They were down judging her uh, because her skill set was, as they described it, uh, too risky for other athletes. So they oh. couldn't reward her for being Ooh, excellent. That's, I've never heard of that. Hmm. Um, that yeah. is bizarre, isn't it? It, it's, it? it is what it is, but that meant the rules had changed. Right. And for an athlete of her caliber and, and her extreme level of professionalism and, and skill, for her to go out and perform skills that were not difficult for her. What's where, the point? Where's, where's, what's the point? Right. What's the point? And then to recognize that you're going to be punished for performing skills that stretch your skill set or that your team is going to be punished for that. Well, that's a negative stressor. 
Mm-hmm. And then having an environment around this world where all of the questions feed on what's wrong with you. Why can't you handle this? This is your job. It's like, um, hi, no, human being, hello. From the pr- perspective of an athlete of Simone's, Simone Biles' caliber, she has to have purpose to what it is that she's doing. She has to have challenge for what it is that she's doing. And then she also has to have the, the internal state that allows her to do these things. And when you start to get into this sort of threat intensive environment, and, and all of these things are, are threats to her professional career or her personal sort of uh, identity and image as an athlete, when you start getting into a threat environment, your negative thoughts go up. And if you have a history of challenges with negative thoughts, well, then it has more of an impact than it did before. It, it, it doesn't impact you less because you've experienced it before. It actually impacts you more because you've experienced it before. Mm-hmm. And then you add those physical challenges that come along with this negative ruminative thinking, which include low sleep, change in appetite, um, increased fatigue, well, now you're physi- physiologically and physically less ready to perform difficult tasks. And now the threat of the task itself is higher than your efficacy in and belief that you can perform it in a way that allows you to remain safe and maintain your career. So what she experienced was extraordinary. And the rest of us, couldn't have even gotten out of bed under the weight of what it was she was doing. And she not only got out of bed, she stood at those sidelines and chalked her teammates and supported them verbally. It was one of the most impressive displays of managing your well-being in the context of a sporting environment that expected you to sacrifice your well-being in order to get praise. I really found that to be really incredibly admirable. And Naomi Osaka, same thing, different skill set. I don't know her background or what she's experienced in the past. And I don't know what has led to her coping strategies being where they are right now. But the the stressors in her world, that her stress budget was was empty and she was working on credit. And mm-hmm. you can only exist on credit for so long before the interest payments become impossible to meet. And that's, I think we got a very visible reflection of where she was. And she still was performing at an incredibly high level. So her skills didn't deteriorate from a, a, mac, a sort of a macro perspective, but some of the micro skills suffered a little bit because, and it could have been because of the physical, she's tired, she's hungry, she's, just not sleeping um, or it could have been because of the the constant presence of the negative thoughts or other thoughts uh, and the physiological responses that came with that uh, in the ter- in uh, heightened arousal. So Susie, mm-hmm. I have a question and I happen to know some of our listeners are coaches. I know we have listeners that are jujitsu coaches and soccer coaches and football coaches. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a side of sports performance. I have no I've never been a coach, um, and it's obviously a very sensitive topic, and it's also so 
there's so many layers to it and there's such individual variants. And this is more of kind of like a policy question. To my knowledge, like the NSCA or the ACSM, they don't have like a specific policy for this, but if you were consulting for them, so like if, because there's individual sports like Naomi Osaka, so if she can perform, there's not a team that is dependent upon her. She's, you know, she's representing sponsors and her coaches, but if she doesn't perform, that's one person. Now there's what I'd call like independent team sports, which is like Simone Biles, where she's part of a team, but her performance is mainly solo. And then there's interdependent team sports. And I think of like, let's say there's the left tackle for the New York Giants. It's just, he just is not okay that day. And he's the best guy on the team. And like, not only is his performance important for winning the game, but like there is serious risk of injury. If you get a guy from like, you just picked up off waivers two days ago that doesn't really know the offense. So how do you see it? Like, how do we set policy? If someone says I can't go, is it just blanket? Okay, you're done for the day. Is it, we have the individual relationships with people and we try to like coach them out of it. How do you see it? I think if we look at, so let's stick with football, NFL. If we look at how how the organizations treated concussions in the past, we would say it was to the detriment of the athletes in the, and their futures. And they have since adjusted their policies to have more strict concussion protocols in place that are a series of step transactions. Mm-hmm. Can you do this? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Can you do this? Yes. Can you do this? No, you're not going on the field. You know, or, yeah, okay, you're okay, but we're also going to add these supports mm-hmm. over here. I feel like there should be a, a and, and we would do that with somebody's physical health as well. We wouldn't think twice. If somebody came in with COVID, we would say, oh, okay, well, what are your symptoms? All right. So here's your treatment. Where are you in the process? Here, here are your supports. Here are your medications. Here's your, here's your prescription. Here's when you return to play. Mental health generalized needs to have that same type of piece because you have people who are in incredibly demanding lifestyles with with a lot of things going on and these are human beings and stuff's gonna happen in their world somebody's kid is gonna get cancer and somebody is gonna have a divorce and and these factors are going to impact their performance and play so the same check-in process yeah where are you here? Where are you here? Where are you here? All right, let's get you some support for that. Or, wow, you're really in a bad place. Let's just take a couple of steps back. Let's get that a little more well, and then we'll put you out here again. Um, as opposed to, ah, no, you're broken. Get out. And then I think there's also then the on the field performances where we can support people in practice. It's like, all right, you know, you've got the yips. You, you, you've been able to do that skill forever. What was going on? Let's back you off of it here and bring you back. What's your knowledge of the skill? All right, let's do each piece of it. Great. Let's build this back again. Great. And, and think about coaching an individual breakdown in the skill or an individual breakdown in the performance rather than, you know, punishing it or, or being like, well, you've got issues. You're benched. There's, there's something in between and maybe you need to be benched for a bit because you're a risk to your, the rest of either yourself or the others, but let's work with you on how we get that 
back to where it needs to be so that you can actually keep doing what it is you do. Yeah, I'm wondering if there's an additional stress knowing that there are other people depending on you. Absolutely. So, you know, Absolutely. with someone, right? So with, with Naomi Osaka, like she's on her own out there. And, you know, mm -mm. she's not playing doubles. She's playing singles. And what was really interesting to me was not so much the, the throwing the racket part of, of her behavior, but there was that brief period of time when it's like she stopped thinking about what she was doing. She didn't even prepare for the serve. She just went up and started moving. And it's almost like she said, ah, the heck with this. I'm just going to keep hitting the ball and play like I'm playing in the schoolyard. And maybe that was a mechanism that she needed. But she was still doing it on her own as opposed to that offensive lineman on a football team. If he's stressed and he's having a tough day and he's looking down the line and like there are five other guys on the line that are depending on him, how does that affect their psyche? I actually think it makes it easier if they have a, a cohesive team environment. They don't all have to be best buddies and they don't have to live in each other's pockets. But if they have a cohesive team environment, environment which is we pull together, well, then he's going to pull together um, and be better than he would be on his own. And I would also argue that Naomi Osaka was not out there alone. She might have been out there physically alone, but mm -hmm. she is responsible for the employment of a number of people and the livelihoods of a number of people. Good point. And, and that, and that's, she's basically a CEO without the, you know, sort of longevity and training that an, a typical CEO would have in the same position. And she's a CEO who is under high demand, high scrutiny, and, you know, with a lot of potential judgments and threats that impact not just her, but that entire business that for which she feels and has accepted responsibility. Yeah, at what, 23 years old, right? Yeah. I mean, she's still a kid, really. And still developing her skill set, too. Right. And Susie, look, if you ask just about anybody, especially a professional athlete, how you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm fine. But if you had a way of tracking it over time, so you could at least maybe anticipate like, wow, you know, even if it's an app and someone like on a scale of one to 10, if you can track the stress and you're like, you know, I'm seeing things trending, like let's intervene now while we're seeing this upward slope of distress before we get to a critical point where there might be, um, you know, an event like that. Yeah. And, and you can, you can track that in a lot of software. It's nice if you can also have it with your performance metrics as well, because then you have the, you know, the GPS data, the performance, the power output, the heart rate, then you also have their um, subjective rating of perceived exertion. So their RPE for the session and then for the, the segments of the session. So let's let's kind of shift the, the discussion because we've been talking about um, what limits performance, what inhibits performance, some of the challenges that people have around performance. And I want to sort of talk about something that is often referred to as being in the zone, right? So when someone's performing, actually performing at a really high level, we've heard the phrase, they're in the zone. And there was, um, there is a recognized I think he's a psychologist, actually, um, named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Now, if you look at that in writing and try to pronounce it from what you see in the letters, you're never going to get that. What but Mihai Csikszentmihalyi coined 
the this phrase flow. Yeah. And I think people may have heard of that. And this notion of flow is that you're in the zone, right? That time slows down. Everything slows down. Your focus has improved to a point that you are just locked in and performing. So I want to start with that concept and how you approach that and what you think of that. And then I want to talk about an extreme case of that, which has sort of become popular in the conventional wisdom around this notion that, you know, I want to address a little bit, but let's just start with the basic concept of flow. What does that mean? What does that mean for you and your athletes? And what should we think about in terms of the people that we deal with on a daily basis? I feel like flow has gotten a, um, it's gotten this magical quality to it. And, <laughs> and it's not magic. Um, it, the four components of flow from Schick sent me high. There we Good go. I, I slowed it down. You did it. Yeah, you did it. <laughs> um, I can learn. The, the four components are an energized focus, full involvement, enjoyment in the process of the activity, and a transformation in one sense of time. And those pieces are four pieces that we don't often address intentionally, particularly in the fitness realm, um, because we allow for so many distractions mm. and we interrupt things or we try to, you know, temptation bundle things. We, we set up circumstances to basically say to people, yeah, no, it really does. It, it's really awful. So you're just going to have to go through it. And it's like, no, it actually isn't awful if you do it to your current capabilities and with an, in, with, with an intentionality where you are actually there doing it and maybe even spending a little bit of time seeing if you can't do something either a little bit better or a little bit more eat with a little more ease. We don't set up a circumstance where we, we intentionally separate from our day into this fitness environment. We make it part of a laundry list and a chore and something to check off and, and an obligation. And that, that in and of itself is never going to elicit flow. Um, it's rare enough as it is, but the only way you're going to even set the groundwork for it is to allow people to experience the process in and of itself, standing individually and to immerse themselves in it. And yeah, no, it's a little uncomfortable to be on your limits, but when you're actually on your limits and you have chosen to be there and you're not forced to be there and there's not an obligation for you to be there because you have to do X, Y, Z in order to burn at, you know, X, you know, kill cows, like just to be there and to experience challenge for the sake of challenge. We don't let people do that. We don't let them do that. And that's, that, that's always going to make flow more difficult to, to accomplish or to experience than anything else that we do. You, you said something about choosing to be there, which I think is really interesting in that it's, it's a choice to get into that state. Um, one of the tenants, and, and I, I have some chapters from Chick Sent Me High's book, so I was really trying to immerse myself in it and understand what he was saying. 
And one of the tenets of flow is that the challenge has to be commensurate with one's skill set. Yep. Right? That, and that's where the choose to be there comes in. We can create a challenge that's a little bit above someone's abilities, maybe pushing the boundaries of those abilities, but there still needs to be this connection between what they can do and what we want them to do. And you mentioned earlier big wave surfing as being one of the most difficult skills in sport. And what resonated with me when you said that is Laird Hamilton. And Laird Hamilton is actually cited in a book that was written by a guy named Stephen Kotler. And this book was called The Rise of Superman. And in The Rise of Superman, he's talking about flow. But the way he phrases it, the context around it that he creates, he's basically saying, hey, look, Laird Hamilton is a big wave surfer. He's getting on these 100-foot waves, and he's surfing like his hair is on fire, and he is in a life-threatening situation. And in order to do that, in order to achieve flow, you have to put yourself in these extraordinary, extreme, death-defying states because there's no other way to get into flow unless you do that. And I thought that contradicted Chick Sent Me High saying there needs to be this match between the challenge and the performer. So what is it? Like, should we be having people do balance training exercises on a rooftop? I mean, is that really the only way to get somebody into flow? Yeah, uh, I, I'm going to have to disagree with that particular premise because, I, I mean, I will give two examples of, of flow states that require no physical threat, and that's um, video gaming mm-hmm. and knitting. Hmm. Knitting. Well, is you a- know, those needles can be very, very dangerous. Oh. I mean, let's face it. If you gave them to me, it would be because no matter what would end up with, it would be a disaster. But um, because I don't have that skill, but people are engaged in the moment and enjoying the task and time ceases to exist and the reward is within the activity itself. And I think I think there's a magical or mystical quality to like what Laird Hamilton does, but it matches his skill set. Right. He has prepared for that. And it still requires every single intense fiber of his being to be there. But he chooses there, to be there. And he chooses to be there. And he chooses right. to do that. But he has to. In, he has to engage completely and fully and immerse himself in that experience for it to work. And he has everything he has done up to that point has prepared him to be able to put himself in that situation to do it. And most people... Like we can experience flow in a much more daily life kind of context. And I generally would advise that for most of us. Not pushing people to the extremes, but creating interesting challenges for them that create exaltation, right? So when they've achieved it and when they've done it, they can say, wow, I did really well. And then, of course, as we said earlier, we're saying, no, you <laughs> sucked. You did this wrong and you did right. this wrong. Well, that'll kill your flow state in a, in a heartbeat. Yeah, good point. Yeah, 
I mean, you can choose any exercise that you want to, and you can put them together in any way that you want to. But what's your purpose in doing it, and what is it offering to the to the person in front of you, the human in front of you? Are what type of change are you trying to elicit, and then what type of growth are you going to allow for with your next step? <laughs> and that could right. be the words out of your mouth, the look, your pose, whatever it is. What kind of growth are you going to allow them or are you going to squelch it and keep it under your control? Because that that's really what it comes down to. And and you you can set up anything. You can have a flow state doing, you know, a bodyweight squat if you are fully engaged, immersed in the experience and working at the at the your limits. And you can be darn proud of yourself afterwards and really have enjoyed that process. And and was it comfortable? No. But I think that's where that that idea of, of exercise being uncomfortable is different than it being intolerable. Hmm. So let's now get into this next this part of the discussion and almost our last part is bringing things into the gym level. So we've already started to, to make that transition. We've talked about all of um, these approaches, these methods, um, some concepts that I think are very valuable to our listeners. And now we have to sort of help people understand what is the transition from all of this theory into some practical application in the gym. So you mentioned something really interesting and, and Gigi, you're the one who brought this up. So let's talk about this discomfort thing because I thought that was an interesting idea. Yeah, so I'm actually borrowing this from Alex Hutchinson. And, uh, you know, basically he's talking about that some people, when they begin to exercise, you know, you're getting sensory input from muscles and joints and skin and if you're let's say you're running and you're not accustomed to it you could interpret that feedback as unpleasant and want to stop immediately some people as we know are just the opposite speaking about flow they get into you know runner's high flow whatever you'd like to call it but they don't interpret those feelings as distress they interpret them as you know either benign or um you know they they know they're doing something good for their body so for people that won't exercise, that it's very difficult for them to create the habit of exercise, what Alex Hutchinson was saying is those people have a really hard time breaking the barrier of taking that proprioception of distress signals and sort of reinterpreting that. So yes, yes, they do. What do we do about that is the next question. So first of all, most people's past experiences with exercise have been bad. They have had uh, negative interactions with the exercise itself. They have had negative interactions with the people that they have met around exercise. And they have had negative feedback from their social network for, for engaging in such a thing, either because they did it badly or because what were they thinking in the first place? Because mm. it's bad. So we have to first and foremost think about that. And we have to separate fitness from body fat management. And that's a piece I think that that is is a critical piece because even somebody who wishes to change their body composition, that's going to be best accomplished in other places because if they try and accomplish it in the gym, they're they're going to overstrain what their current capacity is or underfeed themselves and limit their improvements from the work that they're doing. The, the two things, 
have, have become lumped together and we're, we're not in the body fat reduction industry. We're in the fitness industry. So therefore we need to be thinking about how do we increase somebody's fitness? Well, first of all, we need to open the door for them to actually move. So how do we do that? Well, we have to start in, in my opinion, in the gym, when somebody arrives, we welcome them. We recognize them. We ask them, how are you doing today? And actually look at them and listen to the answer. And then say, here's what I was planning for today. How's that sound to you right now? Does that sound challenging enough, too challenging? Or, or uh, do you want something a little bit more where you're at for today? Give them a say. And then let them actually engage in what it is they're doing without fixing them, progress them, move them forward, invite them in to share the process with you. And then when they say they're done, let them be done. Like what comes from saying, okay, no, no, give me one more rep. Really? That's, that's what's going to change them. Okay. You're, you're done here. Awesome. Next steps. Let's go. Interesting. So let's, let me ask you this though. There are times when we may want to challenge somebody, right? Mm -hmm. So they're there are occasions when they're in flow, they're in this real comfort zone or they're in the zone. And rather than having them pick up more weights or do more repetitions or create a physical challenge, can we do something with their psychological substrates where we actually challenge them from a more cognitive psychological perspective and make that part of the training or fitness experience and how would you do that? Um, I would add mm. mental imagery. Mm. I mean, mental imagery has a, a place mm. in all of this. Like as a kid, you, you played some backyard, something where you imagined yourself, you know, it's bottom of the ninth, two outs, full count. I'm at the plate. What, what am I going to do here? That's one way of doing it is set a situational challenge. Hey, you're here, but also, Hey, you know what? Right now you are, you are cruising along. I want you to imagine if you are doing this here, if mm. you were, so you're, uh, uh, let me try and think of an exercise. Um, you're, you're doing a front squat and you are working that front squat and it's like, all right, outstanding. You, you are knocking this out of the park. This next set, I want you to use the same weight, but I want you to imagine that you are pressing somebody that you don't care for and launching them to the ceiling. Well, mm. you, you've now added an intentionality mm. to that. And mm. there's a bit of humor there because they're not mm. really hurting anybody. Um, but if you can add a bit of intentionality or a a situational thought process like, hey, you know what? You told me you were doing this to be able to help your mom transfer more effectively from the bed to the wheelchair. Well, when you're doing this, I want you to picture yourself doing that with ease. All right, ready, go. So you're, you're creating a mental context for sort of a habitual type of movement where you're doing it in one environment, but we wanna create this context in which you're doing it in a different environment or create a threat environment. You know, you mentioned video yep. games earlier. Yep. And what's interesting is, you know, like if you're playing these mass shooting games, right, that are very popular, um, you're not getting shot at 
yet there's a level of stress and anxiety that exists because you know you could be shot mm -hmm. in the game. There's so a reality you're not to actually that. physically being assaulted. There's no physical risk to it. But the anxiety level is high enough because you know someone's going to sneak up behind you and shoot you in the game. Mm -hmm. Creating no, reality to it. So you create this environmental context um, that you apply to a training environment to maybe that changes the arousal level when you're when you're performing. It it absolutely can. Um, one of the things that I do with my athletes is I give what are called race mindset segments, and it. it it has what their race effort target is associated with it. Um, and, and my athletes ride bikes with power meters on them. So we, we have a range of what their power is going to be based off what their anaerobic mm -hmm. threshold is and all of the technical stuff that goes behind. But I don't tell them that. Mm -hmm. I say this is a race mindset set. I want you to go on race effort. And I want you envisioning the race. You're 30 miles in and you need to eat, you need to drink, and you need to react, and you need to stay on the gas. Ready, go. All right, what went well? Well, I, I, I started thinking about this. I started thinking about that. All right, great. How'd you pull yourself back? Look, I'm identifying the strategy that you use to become successful again. I'm putting a name on it, and now we're adding it to your proactive coping strategy skill set. And then, oh, go do it again. So now you're becoming better at it. It becomes more automatic, automated. It, it's... It... it allows people to immerse themselves in a very purposeful experience, which is important because we all like to feel like we're part of something or working towards something. And that's, that's a way to do it. So we are going to hit our final segment of our episode. And in this one, Susie, we asked the question, what really matters? And this is, this started actually with Gigi, because we were talking in, in one day and he said, like, well, what matters here? And, and I think that's a great way to wrap things up. And it's an opportunity for us to talk about, for us, what really matters, but also if we were to project onto our listeners what really matters here? We, we've spent a considerable amount of time today talking about really interesting facets of sports psychology and performance and, and arousal and getting people ready. But at the end of the day, we're working with human beings. We're trying to uh, manage our own personal training businesses or whatever they are, whatever we're doing. What really matters? So if you were to sort of give some pearls of wisdom for our listeners... What really matters here? What really matters is that there's plenty of people who have the interest in being part of a fitness-oriented mindset. There are people who want to move, and we're not letting them. We're not inviting them in. So thinking about what it is that we are doing when we meet somebody, why it is that we're doing it, and how what we are doing is affecting not just them while they're in front of us, but them while they, when they leave us into the context of their daily lives. And we're going to get people to, to, number one, move better, move more, move with more ease. We're, we're going to change somebody for the positive. If we can remember all of those things are affecting that person in front of us as much as the exercises that we select are. Um, yeah, I would, you know, just echo a lot of what Susie had to say and just 
I think what was great about this conversation was that, you know, if you go through a typical weekend certification course for personal training or you're someone that exercises on your own, you know, it's kind of like the, and not that we want to train people in a weekend course to become a psychologist, but you know, the, that your psychology and how directly it impacts your biology is not really well covered or considered. So just the fact that this is for real, it really exists and you know, how words matter uh, significantly, um, that's what really matters to me. So whether you're a coach or a trainer and the way you're talking to someone that, um, you know, you're working with, or you're just someone that exercises and the self-talk you're giving yourself in terms of pain thresholds and things like that. Um, just being, just starting at a place of being aware of it, um, and being curious about mm -hmm. it, I think that's what really matters to me. Yep, and mm -hmm. not judging yourself or somebody else for whatever it is they're experiencing and just, you know, trying to find the right decision for what's next. Yeah, yep. Mm -hmm. That works. So for me, it, it kind of gets back to our original concept of a fitness ecosystem. And we've positioned it from the perspective of there are lots of different opportunities for us to move. People sometimes define their fitness by the way in which they move, the specific way in which they move. Like, I like Pilates. I like yoga. I like weightlifting. I like running. You know, that's, they're defining their fitness by that. And, and our approach is, you know, the ecosystem allows, should allow us to do everything. That if fitness is a measure of how well we move, then moving in a variety of contexts is important because that helps to expand our fitness. Right? We could solve more problems, we can do more things, we can move more effectively. But a big part of that ecosystem that I've learned about today is one's mental state, one's level of confidence. Right, There are coping mechanisms, their ability to deal with all the stresses that we impose on them, whether they're physical stresses or mental stresses. That's another part of this ecosystem. And I don't think as you suggested, fitness professionals in particular pay much attention to that. And rather than looking at our clients as someone who's looking back at us and, you know, seeing us as, you know, the, these marvels of fitness knowledge, we need to become the partners that they're looking for. We need to be developing the relationships that they need in order to continue along this journey in a positive way and get the outcomes that they want. Uh, I don't think we always keep sight of that. And I think what really matters is that we as professionals have to create relationships and create experiences that make people happy, that motivate them, that build their confidence and comfort. Um, and then they can find their way. And do it in a positive way. And we also, as the fitness professional on the, that side of things, also have to know what it is we're mm -hmm. doing. Mm -hmm. like, the, that the, helps. The, yeah, yeah, that, that one helps too. Um, so <laughs> I hear a, a lot of coaches say it's the relationship. It's the relationship. Well, no, no. First, you have to know what it is you're doing. You have to know mm -hmm. the science of it. And then the quality of the relationship can actually allow the quality of your science knowledge to mm -hmm. be realized. Yeah, it's not binary, yeah. Great Absolutely. point, great point. 
And so with that, we've concluded another episode of Fitness for Consumption, and I want to thank all of our listeners for staying with us. Um, this was a wonderful conversation. Susie, we would love to have you come back and chat with us some more because I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this and we'll probably get some requests. So definitely want to keep that open and have you think about coming back. And until then, we uh, thank you again and we'll see you in our next or listen (laughs) or speak to you in our next episode. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Fitness for Consumption. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we loved creating it for you. Now, we want to hear from you. So drop us a comment at our Instagram account, at Fitness for Consumption, and give us your take on what the hardest thing to do in sports is and why, and we'll pick an entry at random and bring someone on the show to talk about it. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to help us out by following us on our Instagram page at Fitness for Consumption, subscribing, rating, and reviewing our podcast on your preferred listening platform, and sharing the love by inviting some friends to listen to Fitness for Consumption. Thanks, everyone.